Need CEUs to renew your PT license? JOSPT's Read for Credit Continuing Education Program can help. Read and critically analyze one of many selected JOSPT articles, then take an online exam. Each successfully completed exam earns you 0.2 CEUs or 2 credit hours towards your license renewal. For a limited time, JOSPT Insights listeners can try one Read for Credit exam for free. Visit JOSPT.org RFC and click on Get My Free Exam to take advantage of this offer. That's JOSPT.org RFC. Click on Get My Free Exam. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we're exploring how to design and progress a quality exercise program to help folks with rotator cuff problems. Joining me today is Professor Anne Kools, Professor of Physiotherapy at University of Ghent in Belgium. Anne brings her wealth of clinical and research expertise to the podcast today, so you can expect loads of practical suggestions based on solid research evidence. Welcome to JOSPT Insights, Anne. So today, Anne, we're focusing on the rotator cuff. Could you share with us the common types of rotator cuff problems that people are likely to see in the clinic? This is a very important question because the treatment strategy will depend on the specific problem. And if we look at uh, rotator cuff problems in general, we can divide them into three categories. We have the younger population with the tendinopathies, most of the time uh, based on abnormal or inappropriate load on the rotator cuff. Then we have the acute rotator cuff tears, also in the younger people. And these people very often are referred to surgery in early stages, although at this moment there is some discussion about that. Then we have the large group of degenerative atraumatic rotator cuff tears, people who have a rotator cuff tear at an older age, uh, which is not based on a specific trauma, but rather on a normal aging process. So the age difference or the age classification between the traumatic tears and the degenerative one is a rather gray area. But let's say that between 55 years and 60 years, we talk about when you are younger than 55, you have a younger shoulder with more likely a traumatic tear. And when you are older, you have more uh, chance to get a degenerative tear. Now, one of the very important things here is that we should also reassure the patients that this is nothing to be alarmed about. This is not alarming. We often call it the gray hair of the rotator cuff or the wrinkles of the rotator cuff. Everyone gets gray hair when you get older, and we should not be alarmed by that. But on the other hand, we know that um, a substantial proportion of these patients, they do get symptomatic over time, maybe 30 40%. So when we uh, take into consideration the large amount of people who have a tear, even asymptomatic, it's a huge population. So if only one third of them become symptomatic, it's an important patient population that will get to our clinic to get some help. What's the typical first-line management for people with these wrinkles in their shoulder? So there has been a huge uh, change in the approach of the patients with non-traumatic rotator cuff tears from a surgical approach 10, 15 years ago to a more non-operative approach today. 
there is some scientific evidence that shows that uh, operative management is not better than non-operative management in patients with degenerative rotator cuff tears. We very often use the terminology surgery, and then we have the other thing. And the other thing is often called conservative treatment. Now, this is very non-modern, very outdated, and I think we should avoid the terminology of conservative treatment. It doesn't really make your patient believe in what you will do because it's so conservative. So I prefer to call it exercise therapy versus surgery. A non-operative or an exercise therapy approach is the primary intervention. In general, when you have a patient who has an isolated supraspinatus tear, who has not too much irritability in the tissue, and who has reasonable function but not optimal, they are referred to physiotherapist for exercise therapy. Now let's talk about that exercise therapy. What are the key aims of that exercise therapy or that rehabilitation program? Well, the key goal of any therapy is, of course, to get the patient back at a functional level. But there is a little bit of gap in the literature here and also in the clinical practice on what we should do as a main goal in this exercise therapy. There are some voices saying that maybe we should train the remaining fibers of the rotator cuff to compensate for the ones that are torn. And there are other voices saying that we should not focus too much on the structure, but rather on the function. Now, as you will feel throughout this podcast, I'm a little bit a fan of the second opinion because I truly believe that once that the rotator cuff is torn in an older patient, it will never heal. It will never get back to normal again. So we should not focus too much on the structure, but we should focus on function. And when we go into the function of an elderly person, the main thing they want to do is elevate their arm above shoulder height. They want to comb their hair. They want to get, get something from the shelf. They want to open a window. They are not interested in performing external and internal rotation exercises. So the main goal is to optimize the function of the arm in daily life. But we do know that we have a deficient rotator cuff. So I think in general, when we would uh, summarize the focus on rotator cuff tear exercise therapy, it is regaining normal function, in particular elevation above shoulder height with minimal load on the rotator cuff. So we should avoid to put too much load on the rotator cuff. And you've done a ton of work with EMG, electromyography. How does EMG help us design better rehabilitation programs? Well, EMG is a tool that we can use to measure the activity of a muscle during daily movements, but also during exercises. So when your muscle is working hard, it means that, for instance, the tendon is loaded more than when the uh, muscle is working not so hard, meaning that the tendon is not so much loaded. So what we do in research on many muscles, but in this case, particularly on the rotator cuff, we measure EMG activity on the rotator cuff during a variety of exercises. And then we can divide the exercises into exercises with a rather low load on the rotator cuff, meaning that, for instance, the cuff is working less than 20% of its maximal activity. And on the other hand, exercises with a high load on the rotator cuff, for instance, more than 60-70% of the maximal activity. So what we do in this context, when we have patients with degenerative rotator cuff tears, We look for exercises in which we know we train elevation 
because that's the goal in these patients. But in the meantime, we look at exercises that have the lowest load on the rotator cuff. So we, we actually can achieve our goal without too much loading the muscles that are deficient at that time. So what does that program look like? Where does it start and where does it end up? What sorts of exercises are you putting into that program, Anne? So it's important when you design an exercise program that you take into to account several factors, several variables, and we can divide them into two big categories. One category has to do with the exercise itself, what you can achieve with it. For instance, do we want to load the cuff or unload it? Do we want to uh, increase strength or flexibility? So that's one big category. And the EMG studies help us to design an exercise program based on this variable. But of course, this variable doesn't tell us anything about a patient. So a second big group of variables that we have to take into account are patient-related variables, such as the irritability of the tissue, the age of the patients, the, the question whether they will adhere to the program or not, their activity level. Actually, when you design a program, it's always a combination of both groups of factors. So we look at the exercises that would be optimal for the patient, but we also always adjust them based on what the patient at this time can do, wants to do, and is able to do. When we look into literature at exercises with a focus on elevation, unloading the rotator cuff and working a little bit on the compensatory muscles, the deltoids, we come uh, up with three series of exercises. The bench slides, exercises where you actually slide your hand over a bench or a ball or a towel. The wall slides where you do the same, but then against gravity, against the wall. And then a program that has been de uh, designed by the Reading Shoulder Unit a couple of years ago by Dr. Overlevy, which is actually an exercise that consists of open chain exercises. So you use, you use a weight in an open chain, but they give some compression forces in the joint, which makes the shoulder feel more safe. And these three exercises are known to have low activity in the rotator cuff and have moderate to high activity in the deltoid, and they all aim to work towards elevation. And could you paint us a picture? We're podcasts, so we haven't got the benefit of visuals, but could you paint us a picture of what one or two of those exercises might look like? Okay. So for the bench slide, one of the favorites, and then I'm a little bit more at the end of the stage of the bench slides, is that the patient is sitting beside a bench and with a hand on a ball, and then you give them an elastic band around their fingers, and the elastic band is put at the end of the bench behind them. And then you ask them to roll the ball forwards with the fingertips upwards so that you, they really use the ball as a gliding surface and they go as far as they can, including a trunk inclination. And you can do that in a sagittal plane by telling the people just roll the ball forwards toward the corner or, of the bench, but also in a scapular plane by telling them roll the ball towards the opposite side of the bench. And this is a very nice exercise because you really strengthen elevation muscles because they perform elevation, but they're never working against gravity. And it's really an exercise that many people can perform for a long time with increasing resistance without having the burden of gravity. The second one is then, of course, the wall slide. And in the wall slide, you take the ball again and the elastic band, and you put the elastic band under the foot of the patient. So he stands on it. 
And then they have to glide the ball upwards as high as they can against the resistance of the ball and uh, of the uh, elastic band. And one of the big advantages here is that you can ask them to go as far as they can because then you really reach as high as possible without having the burden of an open chain exercise. So that's the wall slide. Now, the so-called Levy program, which is a, pub a paper that has been published in 2008 in the journal Stroller and Elbow Surgery, there the exercise is always the same. The patient brings his arm up passively, vertically, so that the hand is uh, very nicely above the shoulder. And then they perform small movements within their safe range into more forward flexion or a bit less, as long as they feel safe. And they bring back the arm passively. So you take away the most difficult part of the exercise in terms of gravity works because you bring the arm passively upwards. And the main uh, progression of this exercise, and that's the nice part of it, is not that you change the position of the arm, but you change the inclination of the trunk. So if you put your trunk from a supine position into 45 degrees of inclination, then automatically when you do the same exercise and you bring your hand nicely above your shoulder, you suddenly have more inclination than when you are lying on your back. And the purpose is that the patient continues to do the same exercises, maybe with some more weight, but they really never have to work against gravity again. And we know from a clinical perspective, but also from a small pilot study we performed, that if you do these exercises for 12 weeks, in general, they have a much more functional elevation in spite of the fact that we never elevated in an open chain with a large lever arm. I guess the next step is how do you progress from these quite restricted exercises to then getting back to the function, all of the function that the patient would like to do? I tend to avoid pain during the exercises because I believe that in this population, pain is not really in favor of recovery. So I always try to find an exercise level without too much pain. They have to do many exercises a day as much as possible, three sets of 10 as many times as possible a day, but without pain. And when they are easily doing one step, we go to another step. So it's an easy, very easy progression. And I usually try to reach that progression within 12 weeks. We know that in general, uh, 12 weeks is a cutoff point for people for being satisfied with an exercise therapy program or not. So I always encourage my patients to be patient for, for 12 weeks to allow the program to work. So many patients that are really older, I mean 70 plus, 75, we have patients that are 85 years old, after 12 weeks of exercises and a reasonable recovery of elevation, we are fine. And then it's, uh, it's mainly the subjective measures of satisfaction that I use to progress or not. Now, what I usually use in this population, because this is not a sports population, so I use actually two measures, which is the grok and the pass, that really ask the patient whether they are satisfied or not with their program. And for our folks who are reading the research, they'll see GROC is the global rating of change and PASS is the patient that's accepted symptom state. So in the GROC, you ask the patient how much change they felt towards the previous measurements. And they can score that between minus five or plus five. So minus five means I'm much worse than I was. Zero means uh, I didn't change. 
And plus five means I was re I'm really much better. When you have a grok of two, plus two, this is a minimally clinically important difference. So as soon as I have plus two, I'm happy. A second one that I use is, is the PASS. It's the patient's acceptable symptom status. There you only ask the questions, uh, are you happy with the status you are now? Can you live with it? If they say yes, we're fine. If they say no, uh, we have to continue. And we did a small pilot study uh, recently on a small group. It was only 20 patients, but we gave them a tailored program, a program that's really adapted to their status. And we saw that the number of no answers from baseline turned into a significantly larger amount of yes answer after 12 weeks. So I think in this population, this is even more important than strength testing or mobility. Maybe a patient only has 120 degrees of elevation uh, actively, but they are happy with that. So it's, it's more, important, more important, I think, in this population to look for their subjective measures of satisfaction than the objective measures of range of motion and strength. What modifications would you consider making to a program for someone who has higher, say, sports-related function demands on their shoulder? If the patient, for instance, is a bit younger or very active, because we still have people who are over 70 who play five hours of tennis a week because now finally they have time to play tennis, then what I tend to do is I don't shift towards the really isolated cuff exercises because I still believe that we have to manage the function and not the structure. But of course, if they want to play tennis and they want to serve a little bit, then I tend to give them exercises that are in a functional diagonal pattern. For instance, a PNF pattern into external rotation, combining some uh, exercises for the trunk and the core and the lower extremities. The 65, 70-year-old people who want to train more in view of their return to sports and their level to return of sports, I think we should increase the challenge of the exercises a bit more, not by training the cuff, but more like training the diagonal patterns. Yeah, and I think that fits really nicely with what you were talking about right at the top about focusing on the function rather than focusing on the structure. And I think it also really underscores the importance of talking with patients and getting a sense of what their goals are and what their function demands are and then tailoring the choices that you make in your program to, to what the patient really wants to do. Communication is very important in every stage of the, of the treatment. When I see the per, per, a patient for the first time, and I talk about the, the gray hair, sometimes they are a bit surprised and they say, oh, yes, I have gray hair. So I always also have gray hair in my rotator cuff. So the first thing we have to do is reassure them that it's not alarming. It's not because it's strong that you have to fix it immediately. And then throughout the program, I think the first weeks, it's important to get their confidence to adhere to the program. We will sit down again after 12 weeks and we will talk again about how far we got. And then we can see how, uh, how we proceed further. Very often, I really mark it in the schedule. I don't want to discuss it after three weeks or four weeks. I only want to discuss it after 12 weeks. Of course, if the patient gets worse and worse and the irritability goes from low to high, you have to interfere. But I don't think it's a good thing that we change our approach every week because then we lose confidence of the patients. And confidence is a very important issue. Two very important uh, things here are the level of irritability, but also 
what a patient expects from the from the treatment. Now, Anne, you've mentioned irritability a couple of times, so let's talk irritability. Why is it important to consider irritability, and how do you define irritability? When when we see a patient for the first time, the first thing we do is uh, asking ourselves, do we see yellow flags, red flags? Is this patient appropriate for physiotherapy? And then we go to the next stage and we try to diagnose the underlying problem. Is it a stiff shoulder? Is it an unstable shoulder? Is it a painful shoulder, subacromial pain syndrome? Is it is something else in the shoulder? But then it's very important before you start your treatment strategy to define the tissue irritability because that defines what you will do today. Maybe your long-term goal has to do with the diagnosis, but your short-term goal has to do with irritability. We can ask three questions. Do you have pain now without doing anything? Can you sleep on your shoulder? And where is the pain and how far is it going down your arm? So if they say, I have pain now, I cannot sleep, it's going into my arm, we put them into the category of high irritability. And then we will choose exercises and an approach to really decrease the stress levels on the tissue. When they say, no, I don't have pain now and I can't sleep on my shoulder and I only have pain in the deltoid region, for instance, in cuff problems, then we can go more for approach of more stress on the tissue. You talked about your rehab program being 12 weeks or 12 weeks being the time at which you would, re- you would assess how everything's going. How many times are you seeing the patients each week? And then what are they doing at home? So I think this is a very important question because 12 weeks therapy does not mean 12 weeks once a day going to the physiotherapist. So what I usually do is during the first uh, six weeks, I try to see them once a week. And then during the the next six weeks, I see them once every two weeks. So I see them nine times in 12 weeks. Now I know that the strategy is very depending from country to country. So I'm pretty sure that in some countries, nine uh, sessions will not be possible. But I also know that in other countries, they go to the physiotherapist every day. I think that a good monitoring, good education, and a good progression is necessary. I think in the first six weeks, we can progress every week. Now, these these patients very often also have some range of motion deficits. So you can use your one time a week to also work a little bit on mobility if needed. If everything goes well and the patient is adherent to the program, we can really progress the program from a distance only with a video conference. Active movements, uh, you can really examine very well active movements with a video. You can even examine resistance tests during your video consultation. Passive is a bit more difficult, but I think it might be a big step for the future that we really develop a much more science-based but also clinically applicable way to treat the patients from a distance. A degenerative problem is something that we usually expect is going to go up and down. You, you might go for some time when you don't have pain and then it comes back. Is this something where people are going to be coming back to see you at the clinic periodically? Or is, is it much more focused around teaching people the skills to be able to manage when they have flare-ups and not need to come back and see you? I think once you have a rotator cuff tear that became symptomatic and you are 65, The upcoming 20 years, it's very likely that you will have episodes again that you have some shoulder pain. 
But in the meantime, when we educate them well, we can tell them very well what to avoid and what to do in the periods of pain. We can uh, teach them to take into account the irritability and not overdo in periods of high irritability. They still remember the exercises, but I also uh, always say my patients, when you have a new episode of pain and it's, and it's too early to come to see us again, don't try the last exercise you did because that will be too difficult. Go back in your list of exercises and step back uh, a few exercises. On the other hand, I think uh, the, the shoulder that is getting older needs more care. So we know that in spite of the fact that people do exercises, it is very likely that they will be symptomatic in some periods again, and that will, they will come and see us again. And this has been a really great chat. Folks will be able to check the references in the show notes and catch up on exercise tips and um, all of the latest research. Thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. This was really a pleasure for me. I hope it was helpful and that you were, that will reach a lot of people. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.